Welcome to My 90s Playlist. This is a podcast about the hits of the 90s. We're looking at what made our favorite songs so popular back then and why we still love them now. I am Tracy, a.k.a. Chubba Beef. Ooh. (laughs) A.k.a. Young Healthy Snack. Yes. Because I'm going to start eating carrots this week. Yes. That's a healthy snack. Yes. I'm a Koto, a.k.a. Ko, a.k.a. Big Kale. (laughs) It was inspiration. from Big Kale sounds like the industry that I hate the most. (laughs) Big Kale always trying to get me to eat salad. A.k.a. Boa Constrictor. Oh, Oh, a.k.a. Boa Constrictor. Holla at me. I love that. Okay, cool. In each episode, we'll deep dive on one of our favorite songs of the 90s. The lyrics, the music, and how each song came to be. And we'll look at the effects each song had on the world. We'll do some games, tell some stories, and above all, celebrate the music that we love so much. Um, I have a question. Talk to me. Can I kick it? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, you can. Let's add this song to our 90s playlist. It is Can I Kick It by Trap Called Quest. Also, they don't do song intros like this no more. I know. You remember how during the Motown days, like, the intro was, like, its own song? Right. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. 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 Can I kick it? I guess so. Yes, very nicely. Just this one. Not today. Comprehend to the track force. Why? Cause getting mentions on the tip of the vibe buzz. Rock and roll to the beat of the funk fuzz. Wipe your feet really good on the rhythm rug. If you feel the urge to freak, do the jitterbug. Come and spread your arms if you really need a hug. Between this song and just like Biggie's whole existence, I was like, why do New York people keep asking the same question over and over? Where Brooklyn at? Where Brooklyn at? First of all, why yet? Why don't you know? This rhythm really fits like a snug glove. Like a box of positives, it's a plus love. As the trial flies high like a dove. I really love call and response songs, especially in hip hop. Okay. Tribe Call Quest, legendary group, mm-hmm. wildly influential group. John Bush of All Music called them the most intelligent artistic rap group during the 90s. Mm. And I concur. That's not a bad opinion. They're pretty fucking smart. All six of their albums went platinum or gold. Wow. And The Source gave their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm, Uh a perfect rating of five mics. Wow. Now, Now how often did they do that? I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. Get to that in a second. Okay. But we know that this was the first time they'd ever given an album five mics. Later on, they went and gave huh. like albums that came out before it. But this is the first time they gave it to an album that had like got it on its release. And we know how important five mics and that like rating system is to the institution of hip hop, especially in the mm-hmm. 90s. It was mm-hmm. like what every rapper coveted was getting like a four and a half or five mics out of the source. Right. It's like Rotten Tomatoes. Whenever Rotten Tomatoes gives somebody 100%, exactly. it's like, whoa. Exactly. And literally every album that we think of as like a classic Ready to Die, Illmatic, all mm-hmm. of them, them getting five mics in the source is a big reason why we think of them as classics today. Because mm-hmm. Source said they were. Mm-hmm. Also, 1990 just happened to be a really big year for five mic albums. Hmm. There was this one, People's Instinctive Travels and The Path is Ribbon, which Can I Kick It is on. Uh-huh. There is Let the Rhythm Hit It by Eric B. and Rakim. 
Okay. America's Most Wanted, Ice Cube. Okay. And One for All, Brand Nubian. And those are like... Brand Nubian. It's like three weeks, three months. Like, there's very short time Mm -hmm. between those four. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was like... That's it. Once a year, then like once every three years. It was really... Like, 1990 was Hmm. a, a really important year for five mic music. Well, no wonder my album only got a mic and a half. That explains a lot. <laughs> that explains a lot. DJ Tracy, Healthy I would give you album five mics just more. so you know. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Speaking of the source, mm-hmm. I found an incredibly 90s-ass paragraph mm-hmm. about this album and okay. the source's review of the album. Okay. Do we know what year this is? This Look. is 1990. Okay. From source editor Rob Reef Tilo. <clears throat> For those who sleep on the tribe... Get with the program. (laughs) (laughs) This is already so good. For those who have already followed their funky path of rhythm, the new single wins. This is the type of jam you only need to hear once and you'll quickly realize it slams. Get another dope single for one of the best albums of 1990. Now, you know, it's... it's... (laughs) Have you ever read... There's like a blog called Thug Kitchen or something like that. Um, I'm familiar with yeah, the and like they use a lot of African American vernacular English, sure, and they try to talk, and it just falls <laughs> a little bit short, right? It's just like mm, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't think this is my people. It's just like, Dad, please, you know, stop exactly. trying to sound cool in front of my friends. You know what it is? It's like when trolls on Twitter try to pretend to be black, it's and exactly then they what it just is. like. Exactly. Ruin everything. My favorite, like the quickest way to find a troll is the way that they use the word brother with the A at the end. Also, that. Also, that. (laughs) Because who does that? I actually don't want to, I don't want them to like, you know, know that we know. Sharpen up. They'll just do something else stupid. Yeah, they will. (laughs) So it's the way they use the word B, right? They be jacking us. Right. Like, (laughs) oh, I be going to the store to get lunch today. And that's not how it works. It's not how it works. There's rules to this shit. There's rules. It's Um, about perpetuality. Exactly. Do you go to the store often? Yeah, I be going to the store. Exactly. Different. You see? You a linguist. Um, (laughs) um, Shout out to Reef, though, because I'm sure he had a lot to do with the source of success. Probably. This is just very funny. Yeah. Also, this reminds me about a time that my dad tried to use slang with me. It was a long time ago. I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him that my brother had bought me some shoes to go back to school. Uh-oh. And he was like, oh, why are they kicking? Oh. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was over the phone, so I oh couldn't see God, his face. Oh, my God, Papa Clayton. He's like, why are they kicking? I was That's like, bad. they're nice. Okay, here are some of my favorite tribe stories, right? Okay. So I just want to say that the first time I was reading this, I thought that it said Lou Rawls and not Lou Reed. (laughs) It is going to get even funnier when you hear what I'm about to say. Oh, God. So, (laughs) Can I Kick It sampled a song called Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed, not Lou Rawls. Not Lou Lou Reed. Five Dogs said that since they used the sample, they didn't get any money for it. And all the money went to Lou Reed, right? So they didn't clear it with... Yeah. Got it. Yes. So at a concert in the UK, Five said, quote, that was our first album. He's talking about people's instinctive travels and the passive rhythm. Mm -hmm. And the sample is Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. Fuck Lou Reed, man. (laughs) Fuck him. Now, mind you, I still think he's talking about Lou Rawls. And you're like, oh, shit. I'm like, can can black people be mad at Lou Rawls? Is that allowed? No, we're not allowed. No, but Lou Reed, apparently you can. Right. So he says, fuck Lou Reed, man. Fuck him. Because we didn't see no money from that fucking record yet. Really? 
here's what happened. And I take back saying fuck Lou Reed because <laughs> Lou Reed has every right to say, give me my motherfucking money. So Lou Reed, instead of saying no altogether, he was like, yeah, nice. Give me the motherfucking money. Like Smokey and Friday. <laughs> and I, I love how like, Fife is like, let me tone this down just in you case know, Lou Reed changes his mind. Just in case Lou Reed is like listening right now. Right. It is such like a huge song and mm-hmm. such like a quintessential 90s song. And it really sucks that they don't. Yeah. If like, I listen to that on Apple Music today. Uh-huh. Lou Rawls gets all the money. <laughs> Lou Rawls gets all the money. That's fucked up. Um, and so that's the story of when I used to think that A Trap Cop Quest really hated Lou Rawls. <laughs> the end. Yo, Lou Reed, have a heart. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm, I'm like... saying? I am thrilled for today's interview because we will be talking about A Trap Cop Quest with who I think is maybe their biggest fan, I would say, Hanif Abdurraqib. Hi, friend. Hi. Hey, how's it going, y'all? I am Hanif Abdurraqib. I'm a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for joining us. Of course. It's an honor to be here. Hanif, we know that you like tribe a lot, so much so that you wrote a book about it and just very curious about, like, how you decided that your affinity for this music, you needed to turn it into an actual book. It occurred to me when Tribe returned in 2016 and released the album the week of the election, I had this really reflective moment where I'd realized that this group carried me through pretty much most of my life. Mm-hmm. Through There's like several landmarks of, of my childhood, of my, even in their absence in my like, late teens, early 20s, they were still present. And now they had returned in this era of my adulthood that felt very uncertain and that felt very enraged and terrifying. And sure. they came back with, uh, you know, like when people talk about that last Tribe album, I wish more people would talk about how angry it is, you know, Ooh. and how grief sometimes is, you know, a real sibling to rage. Mm. Uh, that album arrived when I really needed it. So mm. much so that I have a hard time going back to it. Not because I don't, I think it's still a strong album, but I, I was in the place where I needed that album. And then when I got out of that place, I was kind of like, maybe I don't ever want to go back there again. Mm. Wow. But it was weighing on me, this idea that Tribe as a group of music makers had carried me through a lot of my life in a lot of different modes of my life. And I, it, it felt important to attempt to honor that and also you know, think about and write about lineage and how sampling brings me closer to people I love, even if it doesn't know it's doing it. And to write about loss and grief and getting to the other side of it. I want to go back to what you just said about rage and anger in the last album. Why do you feel like um, nobody mentions that as much when they're discussing the album? Well, I don't want to say nobody, obviously, because I have seen, I mean, it, it, you know, it has been talked about, but I think that mm-hmm. for me, Rage is the rage is the driving force of the album. It's for me the foremost emotion on the album. Mm-hmm. And I think that a big problem that I think keeps coming to the forefront during this specific administration is that there are people who are often not Black who think that the chaos just began, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Or they think the rage that has been boiling over has just now started to win. You know, so so many people wanted to talk about that album as a reflection of the current moment, but I think about that album as a response to millennia of history. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
so I, I think having a conversation about the rage in that album might mean having a conversation about history in America. And I think there's some resistance to that always. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a, <laughs> a tiny, tiny bit of resistance. So, Hanif, can I kick it as on our, our 90s playlist? Mm-hmm. What do you love about that song? I most love the music video, if I'm being honest. With the big IT that they kept Yeah, out. Yeah, my brother used to have... I mean, I feel like a lot of people grew up in homes where this was a case where people would, you would record you know, MTV raps. So we had a lot of these VHS tapes of you know, MTV raps in Rap City. Oh my God, Rap City. I know, shout out to Joe Claire and all the hosts. Joe Claire! I miss Joe Claire! <laughs> Man. Yeah, I, wonder, I don't know what he's up to. I hope he's doing all right, though. Somewhere oh, being sure. loud, probably still. <laughs> I, I feel like most people who like you never hear from again are like, I'm actually fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's fine. Uh, but you know, the Can I Kick It music video was on one of those tapes and I remember just watching it over and over again because of how, I mean, looking back, it's so hilariously literal, you know? (laughs) It's almost like slapsticky where it's like, I can't believe that this is what this video is. Right. What I used to love about rap music videos back then was just how everyone kind of collapsed into everyone's videos. Yeah. You would just see a Busta Rhymes video and Q-Tip was in it, or you would see a Tribe video and De La Soul and Jungle Brothers were in it. Right, right, and right. It, it created this kind of beautiful understanding around kinship and, like, family. That felt really cool. Yeah, you don't see a lot of that. Do you remember the very first time that you ever heard a song by a Tribe called Quest? Like, can you paint the scene for us? Yeah, I mean, I think... I first heard the song Excursions. Quest is for the bucket. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truck, load of black gold. Listen to the rhyme to get a mental picture of this black man, black woman picture. Why do I see that? Cause I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the music is the proof. And planet on the ground, the act is so together. Gonna fight strong, you need leverage to sever. The unit, yes, the unit, yes, the unit. You know, Excursions is the opening song, Low End Theory, which came out in 91 when I was at an age where I could consume and understand the music I was consuming. You know, I was still very young, but I could at least pinpoint what I was hearing. Uh-huh. And I heard Excursions in the back of my oldest brother's car. You know, in that era, and by that era, I mean the late 80s, early 90s. You know, if you came up where I came up, on the east side of Columbus, in the hood with a lot of folks who didn't have a lot of money, but teenagers who like worked hard to get not nice cars to put very nice systems in them. Mm. <laughs> My brother was among those kind of people. Mm-hmm. And so the music that played in the car was of deep importance. And low end theory, you know, for all people want to talk about its um, kind of genre bending credentials or its conscious rap credentials. Low end theory also sounds very good in a car. Mm. because of the bass lines. Yeah, I was going to say, it must be the bass, yeah. I mean, the whole concept of the album is, yeah, to kind of uh, hit on something in the chest, you know what I mean? So I just remember Excursions opening up that album and it hitting really hard. So that's that's definitely the first Tribe song I remember hearing. Wow. Do you remember how you felt when you heard it? Were you like, oh, shit? Or were you like, what is this? Probably the latter, because I was like seven years old or something, eight years old. (laughs) Um, What I know now, that I didn't know then was of course my brother was listening to other stuff, but the stuff he was playing like around me was different. You know, my brother was probably a bit discerning mm. and not playing like NWA around his like eight year old little brother and right. not playing like two live crew 
around his eight-year-old little brother. So what I had exposure to was the quote-unquote conscious rap or what have you. And so, you know, I hadn't yet reached a point where rap music had begun to pull itself apart into kind of differentiating subgenres. You mentioned that Tribe was present during a lot of like your most important milestones in life. Can you tell us about one or two that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, I mean, well, I remember the summer that Tribe broke up or the the fall, I guess, when they, the love movement came out. I have a lot of love for that album. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that it is not the greatest Tribe album, but I have a lot of affection for it. And the love movement came out a year after I lost my mother. Mm-hmm. And I think a part of me loves it because that album was really a soundtrack to what I understood as healing. Um, what I understood as kind of like coming into my own in this world past the world I'd known or the world beyond knowing the love of my mother and finding the language and emotional awareness to reclaim some of my ability to love the world around me. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate that the love movement isn't, you know, the low end theory. It's not even beat rhymes in life, but I, I have a lot of affection for it. Mm. I think I read that Tribe was the kind of music that your parents were cool with you listening to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, talk to us a bit about that and about Tribe's production in general and what made it stand out. Yeah, so I came up in a house where there was a point, I mean, after a while, my parents just kind of gave up and let us listen to whatever, but <laughs> right. there was a point early on where my parents were kind of like, no rap in the house. Mm. And then there was a point where they were like, if you bring rap in the house, the album cannot have a parental advisory sticker on it. Mm. But this is back again in an era before they started printing the parental advisory labels on the albums, and they were actually literally stickers. So, <laughs> so you could just rip, you could just take you just, them. like you take them off. So if you're hip to the game, you know, like you could just buy right. the album and then pick the sticker off. And right. No stickers came off so easy back then. <laughs> Whose idea was that? <laughs> but you know, when Tribe kind of came in the house, particularly Low End Theory with Ron Carter on it, and kind of the jazz arrangements and not just jazz i mean like there's some funk samples on there that run deep my parents i think particularly my father was in a way hearing the music he loved reflected back to him Mm. and at that point like it doesn't matter i think it didn't matter as much what the music was saying the sound felt comforting or the sound felt familiar yeah the only rap song that my mother liked and would like allow quote-unquote me to listen to was Dear Mama by Tupac and she was like anything Aww. else Aww. that's it that's all oh that's so sweet though it's yeah. sweet. It yeah. is kind of sweet. <laughs> a thing that I've always heard and have been told is how Tribe and Q-Tip revolutionized production what was it about Tip's production that like changed rap and how did it change it like what was it like before they came in and mm-hmm. was like we're gonna do things a little differently I mean I think Tip's ability to, because of how he, you know, he did, he worked with pause tapes before to write it on the book where he was kind of like building landscapes off of samples before he was producing for Tribe. Uh, that's how he learned to produce. And so I think the way he maneuvered multiple samples at once to kind of create an orchestra out of pre-existing sounds. You read all these samples that A Tribe Called Quest was rocking with. I mean, they, you know, Q-Tip was, you know, double-digit samples per song. Wow. Oh, I didn't realize that. I did not that. know that. That is, like, really unusual, right? Yeah, well, now it's because of the lawsuit that has kind of shifted the way samples are are used in rap music. Now it's very uncommon, but it was more common in the early 90s. Producers like Q-Tip or, like, the Bomb Squad, when you could cram a lot of elements of other songs into one song. But 
you know, I think Q-tip did it so well with such a gentle hand that you could almost not tell that he was doing the thing he was doing. Right. So what were people, aside from you and your brothers, listening to in Columbus while y'all were like deep in tribe? Because I claim to be like half Southern, half Midwestern. And you're from Kentucky, right? You're from Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I didn't discover tribe and like East Coast hip hop until like well into my 20s because people just weren't listening to it at home. Mm. So what was everybody else listening to? Oh, people were listening to the tribe. I mean, people were listening to Native Tongues, but people were also listening to Solo Ice Cube. The Solo Ice Cube records are really big, I remember. Mm. The Midwest was interesting because as West Coast rap began to emerge, I think it took a, a little bit for it to catch on where I was at, mm-hmm. mostly because so many people were from the East Coast or from the South mm-hmm. and were primarily listening to East Coast rapper, Texas rap, like Ghetto Boys, mm-hmm. you know, early UGK. When G-Funk particularly began to catch momentum, it took a while for it to catch on, but when it did, it felt like it really did. Like, mm. people were listening to The Chronic and Doggy Style and all that, like, everywhere, out of every car. Mm. And on some real shit, I think people were also just listening to, like, New Jack Swing and R&B in a really big oh, way. yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. the Mary J albums were huge. Mm-hmm. You know, those early Mary J albums and Jodeci. There was something interesting about the era where R&B felt like it was dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? Like, Say you know, Bobby Brown. Even Belle de DeVoe. I think R&B now is still very sexy in some similar ways, but it doesn't feel as dangerous. It doesn't feel as rooted in danger in mm-hmm. the ways that I imagine, like, hair metal felt that way, too, I think, for, like, young white kids. In some young white kids, too. But, like, where there was this amount of excess and sexuality Mm -hmm. and brazen performance of often masculinity, I will say, that kind of pushed against the the door of danger. You know, like I remember seeing Bobby Brown music videos and stuff when I was a kid and being like, oh, I I don't think I want to be like that, but there's something appealing about that. Mm -hmm. The leather and the like. Are you you talking about the humping around video? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think there was a lot of R&B in that moment too, because people kind of were gravitating towards New Jack Swing and R&B and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an accomplished and very, very skilled poet, how would your writing be different if you had never discovered Tribe? Mm. I mean, I think the thing that I try to tell people about writing poems in specific is that I believe in the poem as a verbal exercise, but also a sonic exercise, not to sound too like Love Jonesy. Um, we can get Love Jonesy, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Start I think that to write within an oral tradition or to even engage in an oral tradition feels to me, particularly for Black folks, that it's important to prioritize the rhythms of language. Mm. And I'm not talking about mm. rhyming, I'm not talking about like everything we speak has to rhyme, but I think that language can be percussive and language can be swelling and language can have crescendo Mm -hmm. and all these elements that came to life, I think, in Tribe's production. You know, Q-Tip's production is so thoughtful and layered in a very specific way. And it really helped, it continues to help kind of guide me to this desire to be not just a writer, but kind of like a band leader, you know? Mm. Find the way that my work can be musical. Wow. Mm. So I want to actually, I want to talk about something that I've been thinking a lot as I've been listening to a lot of Tribe's music, which is friendship. Mm -hmm. Friendship gave birth 
to so much of the black music that we love. But it's also often like the demise of those friendships or those core relationships also become a part of that mm. legacy. So, Hanif, what was unique about Q-Tip and Fife's friendship and how do you think that friendship and its demise sort of influenced their music? Well, they were like brothers, you know? It seems to me that Q-Tip has always been a perfectionist, someone who works immensely hard and someone whose vision for his work is unmatched. Yeah. And Fife is someone who, you know, is very naturally gifted. And, mm. and sometimes it seems did not take things as seriously because when you're naturally gifted, you know, you almost don't have to. And so, you know, I think a lot about this idea of the athlete who shows up to practice late, you know, and like sluggishly runs through practice and then on, on game day puts up 50 points while the, the person who has to work really hard maybe puts up a big number too, but isn't as rewarded. And so I think there's a dynamic there like that where it seems like Q-Tip felt like he seemed to feel like he often had to take care of Fife or like mm -hmm. stay on top of him like the way an older brother might. Mm -hmm. I just think that dynamic's not ideal for a friendship, particularly if these people have to depend on each other to mm -hmm. make money. And that's, I mean, I think a real downfall of all of this stuff is that people have to depend on each other for financial comfort. Because uh -huh. when you get down to it, you know, it's a business transaction too, you know? Yeah. For a stretch, you can be like, well, look at those two friends creating together. Uh -huh. But you hit a certain point and it's like, no, 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 there's, this is a business transaction. Yeah. You know? Right. This friendship is effectively two people in business together. Yeah. And that has to be honored too. Yeah. yeah. Is that what was at the heart of their breakup? Just like the tensions that happen once, like mm -hmm. the thing that you love to do becomes the thing that you now have to eat off of and like dynamics change and... Yeah, I mean, I think there was a change in dynamics. And I also just think, you know, they worked really hard for the first half of the 90s in a way that, you know, those first three albums came like back to back to back. Mm -hmm. And they took two and a half, three years off before they put out another album. But... You know, they were so young when they started. Another thing about this with groups and the evolution of groups is that so many of them are so young when they start. Yeah. And just very organically, people grow up, you know? And through that growing, there's just kind of like, you know, we're not the same people we were. Yeah. Which is normal. We love each other in different ways now. Mm -hmm. We've seen the other mm -hmm. side of it that requires us to be loved differently. We all grow up and grow apart from friends we have sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And just project that natural living experience onto a musical group that you're in with your friends mm -hmm. where you're relying on each other to make money or to survive. Mm -hmm. Tracy, this is why we should never start a group. Uh, <laughs> one of many reasons. I know we've talked about it. But wait, we started a group. It's too late for all this now. I think we should disband. <laughs> oh. Okay, who's the second lead singer? <laughs> we got to fight it out. We got to duke it out. Right, right, right. I mean, I think when they broke up, it felt to a lot of people like what was going to happen happened where, you know, I think the people were kind of salivating for the Q-Tip solo career right. that was inventive. And, you know, I, I did think that in some circles, at least coming up for me, there was this narrative that was growing by the time they broke up that was like, well, Fife is holding Q-Tip back. Mm. And once they break up, Q-Tip will have the, the solo career he deserves. And in some ways that happened. I mean, I, I don't think that Fife is holding Q-Tip back. Let me be clear on that. Right. Mm -hmm. But Q-Tip got the solo career that a lot of people were projecting for him. And Fife, 
I write about in the book and I say it all the time. Fife released a really stunning solo album that was very good and extremely overlooked. Mm-hmm. The Ventilator LP, which recently got added back to streaming services after not being on them for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. I encourage people to visit it and spend some time with it because I think it's an incredible album of rapping. But Fife, again, wasn't seen as commercially viable as Q-Tip, I think. Mm-hmm. And Q-Tip is also, you know seen as the capital G genius. Right. Uh-huh. And the person who could sustain a solo career. Yeah. 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 And I think once that gets attached to someone, it's hard to shake it. And, and then that just, I think Q-Tip, that was the thing. He got to carry that with him. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, th- I mean, and ultimately, I think like that is often part of the breakup. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think, I mean, media plays into that, right? Because it's, you know, mm-hmm. like even the run up to the last Sync album, for example, it was just like a foregone conclusion that Justin Timberlake would go solo. Mm-hmm. So then the question, I remember this, I remember the question more or less being like, well, Justin Timberlake's not going to miss. So who left is going to have a viable solo career? And I feel like people landed on JC. And um, he tried. He and did. He tried. And you know baby. what? He deserves more because Give It To You is such a good song. And it that is. video was just so fucking happy. You're at the circus and the merry-go-rounds and you dancing. And he's just like. It was fun. It was fun. You speak about the loss of Fife, and I'm sure that had an incredible impact on you. And, you know, I want to know how you felt when you heard that news and how it sort of shaped your project. Yeah. um, You know, losing Fife was heartbreaking for me because, I mean, as I write about in the book and as I talk about a lot, I'm a big Fife guy. You know, I think in any group of one, two people, I think you kind of just pick a person and that's your person. you vibe with the most. Yeah, for Mm. sure. Yeah. Saw that with the like boy band era, and before that, we saw it with like the Beatles and the, you know all this kind of thing. And Fife was my guy, and I say this understanding Q-Tip is brilliant. And you know, when I say Fife is my guy, I don't mean like I don't like Q-Tip. It's just that there was something about Fife where he felt very much like an underdog. You mm-hmm. know, Q-Tip was the traditionally handsome, mm-hmm. smooth, older kind of like old, yeah, yeah. Tall. Cooler, yeah, taller. You're much taller, and I am not a tall person. You know, like I'm not, <laughs> I, I, it dawned on me very at a very early age that I was not going to be tall, and it dawned on me at an early age that I was not going to be like traditionally handsome in this movie star like way. And so, growing up where I grew up, what that meant was you had to work on your jokes. Yeah, you know, you could really disarm someone if you could play the dozens right, mm-hmm. and. Fife embodied that. He was so quick. He was so smart. He was so witty and brilliantly referential. And so it felt like for the first time, oh, there's a rap star who's kind of like me. Mm. And so to lose him was heartbreaking. Also, his mother, Miss Cheryl Boyce Taylor, is is a brilliant poet who Mm -hmm. I have a lot of love for. Mm. And there was something heartbreaking for me about knowing and loving her work and knowing that she was grieving it as well. Mm. Yeah. Sure. We have some very random questions that we didn't know where to put into anything else. So we'll ask a few and then we'll get out of your hair. Um, <laughs> who would you cast in a Tribe tribute performance? Um, I mean, Anderson Pock did, you know, a great job playing with them. Um, mm-hmm. I would love... You know, I know that people talk about the voice's instrument a lot, but I think someone like No Name just really embodies mm. the idea of a voice that is like really malleable sonically. I would love to see someone like Gary Clark Jr. interpret their music. Mm. Whenever I think about this, I'm thinking about people who, you know, have 
bodies of work that speak to the many modes of Black expression and could do justice by robustly representing tribes' work. I like your tribute. Do you feel like they get the recognition that they rightly deserve these days? Oh, yeah. I know that it's probably popular to say, like, no, because they deserve more. But, Mm. you know, so many of our folks deserve more, you know? And so, in short, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I I think, is there a world where they deserve more? Of course. But I think I could say that about so many of our people. That's actually refreshing to hear that, like, yes, they are duly appreciated. That makes me feel good inside. Legends. Mm-hmm. Legends. Okay. If you met a teen, right, and they had uh-huh. never heard a tribe song, and you wanted to put them on, where would you tell them to start? My instinct was to say scenario, but because that's not a solo tribe song, I might steer a- away from that mm-hmm. and say the space program. Because I think the thing about the new tribe album, right, is that it sounds like it could be made in any era. Mm. And so I would lean into that and mm. say, start here and, and work backwards. Okay. Okay. What is Tribe's legacy? Oh, um, I don't know if it's for me to say. I think their legacy for me is redefining my understanding of what coolness could look like, particularly mm-hmm. what Black cool could look like, mm-hmm. and allowing me to expand my own imagination around coolness in my little Midwest corner of the world. Mm-hmm. That's dope. Hanif, is there anything that we did not ask that you would love to talk about? Something that you wanted to say but couldn't work in? No, this was great. Yay! I learned so much. Where can people find you and your work? Where can we find your book? What's the title of your book? How can we support you? Because I know that the yeah. people are going to want some more DJ Neef, which is, I guess, your <laughs> DJ name now. <laughs> um... <laughs> That's true. DJ Neef. That's where you can find me. I got mixes already. um, I'm on everything as Neef Muhammad, N-I-F Muhammad, as one would imagine it is spelled. And the book is called Go Ahead in the Rain, and it is wherever books are sold. But please buy it from an indie bookstore if you can. Mm, Love it. Hanif, I would like to thank you for spending time with us and teaching us about things and just talking. I just love to hear you talk. You just say smart stuff. And you I'm just really like, do. who I would so much. think about that? Who would think about these things? Come back anytime. We live in this studio because of COVID. So, you know, we ain't going nowhere. <laughs> 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 thank you, Hanif. We appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. Stay safe. This has been My 90s Playlist. And before we go, we have one last segment called Put Me On. Okay, so after I re-listened to all of Tribe stuff, including Fife's solo album, mm-hmm. shout out to Hanif for putting me onto that. Shout out, and shout after out. I read all of Hanif's books, mm-hmm. what should I put on next? You should listen to literally any and everything by T-Pain. Here's why. I respect that. He's fucking talented. Check. Won the Mass Singer, which I really, I just really like that show. Check. Also, he's really fucking talented. I think a lot of people are like, oh, he's the um, auto tune guy. Nah, fuck that. Fuck that. We yeah, ride, we'll for, we ride under for the T-Pain. table. Exactly. In particular, T Pain's NPR Tiny Desk concert. Oof. If you got questions about this man's talent, watch him do it live. Then come find me in the streets, and you can fight me if you disagree. You know what I love about that is that like he's emotional. I will cry right now. He's like, I'm trying to show y'all I've been doing this. Anyway, T-Pain, I believe you. I always have believed you for the record. And I'm going to watch that. 
I'm gonna watch that. Do it. Yes. Me too. I cannot wait to put that on. We'll be back next week to add another track to our mixtape here on my 90s playlist. Bye. Bye. playlist is a Sony Music Podcast. The show is hosted by me, Tracy Clayton, and Okoto Aforiata, and produced by Multitude. Our lead producer is Eric Silver, editor is Brandon Grugel, and executive producers are Tracy Clayton and Amanda McLaughlin. A special thank you to the artists, their managers, and everyone at Sony Music who made this podcast possible. For a full list of show credits, please visit My90sPlaylist.com. You can find a playlist of the songs from and inspired by our show by searching My 90s Playlist wherever you stream your music. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe and be sure to tell your friends. That is the best way to help us grow. Thanks for listening.